A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. On the last episode of Guilt. And Jim was in there, standing at his locker, and he had no shirt on. He was standing at the locker with no shirt on, with his pants, um, long pants on. And I said, oh, hey, Jim. And he didn't say anything. And he sort of moved in a way so that I couldn't see in his locker. I was short of laundry, so I was looking for some more clothes, basically. Because I, so I went over to the overflow area and uh, pulled out a pair of trousers about, almost about the right size for me, I thought. And then uh, I saw cow shit on them, so well, they shouldn't be here in the first place. And then I saw the name. Yeah, because um, it was actually labelled, you know, Jim Donnelly. So that fucking hell. Shit. So I left it there. Um, left it there where I found it and went uh, around the corner to the telephone and rang my supervisor. Did you better come out and look at this? Yeah. That's all I told the cops. There's violence that may disturb some people. Today we can officially announce that New Zealand Steel has cracked the code. On the 21st of June, 2004, scientist Jim Donnelly vanished from his work at the Glenbrook Steel. From Brevity Studios in New Zealand, I'm Ryan Wolf, and this is Guilt. one reason I started this podcast, and that's because I thought I might be able to make a difference, to look where others haven't, clarify evidence that may have been overlooked or misconstrued. The passage of time can be a curse, or it can be a blessing. Allegiances can change. But one thing that also happens over time is that simple errors 
can be repeated again and again until the point where they become fact. And over time, the truth has been lost. In the last episode, we learned about the discovery of Jim's pants and the splattered cow shit. And the fact that at this stage, I've been able to find no logical reason this should be there. Other than Jim wearing those pants in the field surrounding the mill. The discovery of Jim's pants had initially been regarded as nothing more than happenstance. Just a coincidence. And as far as I can see, has never been given any serious consideration. As Dave Glossop said in episode 2, Just a red herring. Well, I've recently discovered there's another extremely important piece of evidence that has been not only overlooked, but in fact has been completely misunderstood. Not only in police files, but literally every serious story ever published about this case. And this has to do with the acid bath that Jim's items were found in, and the fact that it was extremely weak. Yeah, so the acid bath was, um, and again, um, media who've covered this story before really love that term, acid bath. You know, it sounds like something from a Sunday horrors movie yeah. back in the day. Um, but it was a knurling solution, which is just to loosen rust. Um, it's been described to me by scientists as you could swim in it and get a suntan. You know, so and Jim would know that. So the uh, personal items that were found inside the acid vat, um, which included the old-fashioned um, cash, you know, the paper cash back in the day before the plastic stuff, wasn't even damaged. That's you know just to indicate how weak yeah. uh, the acid was. What if I were to tell you that's not true? Uh, I think if I remember right, the guys we just asked the guys have a. Well, actually, I don't know where they actually were looking for anything, actually. It, uh, um, the guys were up on the um, pickle tank area and just walking along and spotted a hat underneath the, some um, drive shafts of the ring rolls, yeah. So it's, yeah. it was just one of those things. They, yeah, they, and uh, I think after the hat was discovered, that that's when we sort of drained the, the pickle tank from then, you know. And, and, um, just to check out whether, whether or not anything was in the tank in that. This is Mark Olson, a former NZ Steel employee and team leader in the exact pickle line area Jim's hard hat was discovered. I've been trying to find Mark for a while, and when I finally did, he was able to shed some light on what really happened the day Jim's hard hat was found. Mark took photos of Jim's hat before it was moved, and in fact, was literally the person that found Jim's items in the vat. Although in reality, that's not exactly the way it happened. I asked him to take me back to when the helmet was found and the subsequent draining of the vat. And what he said, frankly, blew my mind. Because it completely flies in the face of everything I've ever heard. I apologise, the audio quality of this call is not great, but it is important. Yeah, so that was Bruce um, Bruce Robinson that found it, was it? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, yep. Um, so, yeah. so when he found it, what happened then? Did he sort of come and find you, or what was your position? Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, I was his team leader. I was his boss, you know. And yeah, he he came and showed me, you know, showed, you know, what where it was and that. 
Yeah. And um, yeah, so, and I think uh, if I remember rightly, yeah, it was we because of that we drain the tank, uh, pump the tank out, and um, found the other bits and pieces in the tank. Um, yeah, that, I think that was a sequence of events that happened. Um, so you said you were sort of team leader. Um, was that yep. so, so? The pickle line in that area was that sort of under your control. Yep. Yep. Okay. Yep. Um, well, can you tell me about the um, the searches that that took place um, after Jim was initially went missing? Sort of what I guess you would have been involved in that process. Yeah. Yeah. I think. Uh, well, we've searched a whole rolling mills really, which is a big area. Um, Hot and cold mill and that, and uh, you know, I did a lot of searching myself, and it was pretty thorough. I mean, we, went, we went to areas that probably no one's ever been, as far as through the tunnels and that, you know, the, and the, and um, yeah, it was virtually like I say, it was a pretty thorough search, and nothing was really nothing was found at all, apart from the later on the hat, and I think the hat was just. I think there's talk about it being planted. I don't think it was planted. I think it was just overlooked. Um, oh, so that's, that's your opinion? That's my opinion, yeah. Because that area up there, you could say, oh, you could say, oh, go and search, go and search, you know, the, um, the pickle tank area, you know, and it's up on a, it's up on a you know, one story up or a couple of stories up. Mm. And there's nothing, there's nothing there to hide. You know, you can't hide anything there because it's just, you know, you know, I think, People would have gone up there and just had a cursory look down the down each walkway each side and said, "Oh, nothing here." You know? mm. um, it was, yeah. and that's that's what I think that the hat, which wasn't easy to see under the ringer rolls, and it was sort of like it was upside down, and um, you know, and it wasn't it was an uncommon thing to see hats lying around that had been you know left behind after you know tradesmen had done their work and that sort of stuff, or old hats, and then been just left. You know, so it wasn't wasn't really an unusual occurrence. So. You remember when I told you this is an organic investigation. You're part of this. It's live. I don't complete the whole investigation, then pick and choose all the bits that line up perfectly into a nice tidy package. In the last episode, I said to you that in my opinion, based on everything I'd heard, that it was not possible the hard hat could have been missed. The searches were too thorough. Well now... I'm going to present you with another alternative, that perhaps the hard hat was missed in the search. For the first time, we are hearing from someone that was in a leadership role in charge of the searches in that area. And in his opinion, the helmet wasn't necessarily placed in that location in the hours just before it was found, but could in fact have been there the whole week. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's interesting because... I've had most people that I've talked to at the middle, they were sort of under the impression that the searches were so thorough that there's no way it could have been missed. And I have, well, yeah. 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 Like I say, the, the searches were thorough. Yeah. But I say, like I say, that area would, to me, wasn't an area that was thoroughly searched compared to other areas. I get what I'm saying. Mm. Yeah. I've seen photos of it and it's quite, yes. it's quite open. Yes, there's this open area, and you look down each, there's walkways on each side of the tanks, and you look down, oh, nothing here, nothing to see, you know, because there's nowhere to, there's nowhere to hide or hide anything, you know, except for, you know, obviously that, that hat was under the, um, under the ringer roll shafts. Um, mm. Yeah, I've seen a photo of it, and, you know, it, 
if you're looking there, I mean, it stands out pretty clearly. But I understand, like you said, that it's sort of up some stairs. So the question was, I always thought it had just been overlooked. But, you know, from talking to so many people, I kind of changed my mind. And I thought, well, actually, by the sounds of it, it can't have been overlooked. But you think maybe, and if you work in that area... Yeah, yeah. No, to me, I thought it was overlooked. And also, I think the reason it was there, because it wouldn't go into the pickle tank. Yeah. You know, because there was a jacket that was put in the pit. There's a jacket with his wallet and that went into the pickle tank. But the hard hat was too big to go through the little hole, you know, the, the mm. sample hole there. Right. And it was just put put under the ringer rolls, you know, the next lot of ringer rolls. Mm. Yeah. So that's my thought anyway. <laughs> Well, that's what I thought because I, um, someone that's actually at the mill, I got them to send me some photos and one with the helmet next to the access hole. And I mean, it's, you know, it obviously won't fit, but it's not far off. So, my, no, right, yeah, yeah. So, my, I had the same thought as you that they've put stuff in there and then thought, shit, this won't fit. I'll just put yeah. It. yeah, and just whoever it was, whether it was Jim or something walking out, just threw it on, you know, put it under, you know, whoever it was, put it under the roll. Yeah. Just to quickly clarify, it was a mill employee named Bruce Robinson who was the one that actually discovered Jim's hard hat. He then alerted Mark. Mm. Um, so after Bruce came and got you, you must have thought, "Shit, this is this is might be important." Yeah, yeah. This, I think that sort of kicked off. Okay, we, well, you know, it is it, it is his hat, and uh, we'll, uh, you know, perhaps we should you know drain the tanks just to make sure you know to to eliminate any. You know, and I mean, there's no way that anyone can get into the tanks, but mm. um, but we, you know, we drain the tanks, and um, that's where we found um, parts of his jacket or parts of a jacket in the tank, mainly just the nylon nylon uh, stitching that was left, and in the filters we found, you know, um, remnants of obviously his wallet and anything like m- money or like. Uh, Money didn't dissolve. Oh, no, no, notes you know, didn't dissolve, and um, then plastic, like I think, is a library card, that sort of stuff. Yeah. So hang on. So you're saying that, in your mind, do you think that a jacket went in there and then it dissolved? Oh yeah, definitely. We pull, we pull past part, the jacket out. Well, I've never, I've never heard this. Oh. It's not in any police report or anything that I'm aware of. Ah, well, that's what my, you know, you could, you could see the stitching off the jacket. That's what I think I, my feeling is that, you know, when a jacket with a, that's a wallet, with, the, with that money in it and, you know, the plastic cards went in, you know, was chucked, put, in, put down that sample port, sample hole, you know, into the acid tank. And the, over time, the, you know, the acid, the acid just ate up all the jacket, apart from the nylon stitching, I think it was, that was, it was, oh, ash. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. So stitching, so I think labels and that, you know, off the yeah. jacket. Well, because there was a, there was a jacket tag with the name Dean, which is obviously the label that was found. That was I've got that on the police report. Okay, yeah, but yeah. it doesn't say anything about remnants of the jacket or anything. Like I say, when I say there probably wasn't any remnant remnants of the jacket were the stitching, you know, the nylon stitching, you know, that were yeah. and the labels, that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah. So you were actually the person that was there when the tank was drained. Yeah, I was the one who opened up the filters down the bottom. The actual the, the tank was drained, and um, 
the money and the plastic cars and that were actually in a, filter, a pump filter that was down on ground level and it was I remember opening it up and yeah we pulled out the pulled out the you know the basket and that's when we found the money and the, the plastic cards we handed that's when we handed them to the cops who were there happened to be still there and I think the um the stitching and that we got that came out of the tank it wasn't the that wasn't in the um, the filter. It was actually in the tank. Well, you'd have heard me do a double take there. Suddenly, everything is starting to make perfect sense. The question that has been asked by everyone throughout the history of this case, what is the meaning behind the seemingly random items in the vat? Even Dave Glossop said that they couldn't make sense of it. In his words... Who throws money out? But the reality is, that's not what happened. Those individual items weren't thrown out at all. Jim's entire jacket was stuffed through the access hole of that tank. And inside Jim's jacket, three keys, his palm pilot, glasses, his wallet, which would have contained the other items found, being his library card, American Express card, Visa card, and the $120 and two $10 notes. The entire jacket dissolved in the acid. The remains were then pulled out of the tank and the filter. Remember that label found in the filter, Dean? Well, who supplied all the jackets for NZ Steel at that time? You guessed it. Dean. No one selectively threw anything into that tank. Everything pulled out of the filter was simply what was in Jim's jacket at that time. But wait a second. Wasn't that tank really a weak, non-acidic acid that couldn't dissolve a jacket? Wrong again. So I've heard a lot of people say that the acid was very, you know, it would never dissolve a person, and we know that no one could get in there. But so it's, it was strong enough that it could dissolve, you know, like items of clothing. And... Oh, yes, yeah, yeah. Especially, you know, it's, especially if there's, you know, been a few days sitting in there, you know, it'll be through anything, yeah. I eat through steel, so you can't leave steel in there, so, you know. Well, it's interesting. Yeah, people generally, they sort of make out that, oh, no, that the bath was only about the equivalent of, like, Coca-Cola, but it's obviously more than that. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. <laughs> no, you've got to, we, whenever the line stops, they had to drain the acid, stop, stop it eating all this, you know, stop it eating right through the steel. When you say a jacket, because I know that there's different types of jackets at the mill, do you have any idea of what jacket it might have been, or no? It was. Oh, it would be a standard, standard uh, New Zealand steel jacket, like the orange and yep. blue one. Yep, yep, yeah. And he was he, he wore one like everyone else, you know. Yeah, I wore. He wore one, you know. That was, a, you know, that's that a company issue. Yeah, no, that, that acid we will eat through steel, mm. you know. <laughs> yeah, which is pretty pretty hard. So. So long as it's got a few days to do it, it will eat through stuff. Oh, it doesn't take long. Wow. Won't take long at all. Less than you know, a couple of hours, probably. It's in, it all depends how thick it is. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's because it's hot, you see. Oh, is it hot yeah. as well? It's hot as well, yeah. Yeah, which, which speeds up the process, you know. On the pickle line, there are a number of baths. In this area, three. Two of these baths are made up of water for rinsing. And the third is acid. I've heard many different people that worked at or still work at the mill describe the acid bath as benign, unable to dissolve anything. 
But the reality is that in theory, staff don't move freely from one plant to another within the mill. And if you hadn't worked in the rolling mill, well then you wouldn't really have any idea what the strength of the different vats was. No, that's right. If you don't if you don't if you don't work in an area you don't you wouldn't even see it. You wouldn't even know how it operates or what, you know, what it's like in there. You know, because people aren't allowed to go into other plants, you know, you mm. you're only you only sort of registered to go into your plant, you can't go into another plant unless mm. gotta follow the procedures to, you know, gotta be accompanied by someone, that sort of stuff. This leads us to the obvious. Unless it was pure chance, whoever put the jacket in the vat knew the items would dissolve. This means they would have had to be familiar with the rolling mill and even more specifically, the pickle line. I asked Mark whether Jim would have been aware of this. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Certainly him being a production engineer, yeah, he knew exactly what, you know, what the, um, the chemical sections were capable of, yeah. You wouldn't happen to know exactly what the tanks were made up of? Oh, hydrochloric. It was. So it was hy- just hydrochloric? Oh. If I remember, hydrochloric, I think, pretty sure it was, yeah. Yeah. That's what we use for cleaning it. So it was just a hot hydrochloric acid? Yeah. So the other tanks are rinse tanks, so they're not as strong. They are... But that's water. Yeah. So that's the thing. There's three tanks. Jim knew exactly which one had the acid in it, or whoever, or or whoever did, and they put it into the one with acid, not the rinse ones. Yeah, that's right. So you'd, you'd find a full... Probably find a full jacket with a wallet in it, you know. Mm. If if you you know if it went into one of those rinse tanks. Wow. So that, I mean that shows right there that it was put in there specifically to get dissolved. Yeah, I'd say so. Yeah, 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 yeah. They knew what. It would... If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss doing hot hydrochloric acid we've heard from mark that this acid is indeed strong it's no benign solution but i needed to know for sure what hydrochloric acid is really capable of can it really dissolve a jacket and how long would this take so I'm Lyle Hinton. I'm Mellow Professor of Chemistry at the University of Otago. 
I am I have considerable experience with hazardous substances. I chair the university's hazardous substance and radiation committee, and I work with the hazardous uh, substance and technical liaison committee, working with the fire service and police with hazardous incidents. New Zealand's University of Otago is considered one of, if not the number one university in New Zealand, and ranks highly in the world. Lyle is a current professor of chemistry and has significant experience in dealing with hazardous substances. I asked him what hydrochloric acid is and how potent it can be. Well, hydrochloric acid, is, it's, so the, I mean, it's one of the three classic acids, one of the three classic mineral acids, hydrochloric, nitric, and sulfuric. And, and it's a little bit different to the other two because hydrochloric acid, uh, so nitric and sulfuric have oxidizing properties when they're concentrated. So, you know, they're the ideal ones for um, disposing of something in a sense because they, they oxidize. So, I mean, acid by itself, unless it's very concentrated, um, you know, won't necessarily, I mean, it'll react with things, but it won't necessarily destroy everything that, it, you know, it touches. And and that would be the case with hydrochloric acid. I mean, um, hydrochloric acid, even concentrated hydrochloric acid, I mean, it'll damage your skin and things like that. But, you know, if you if I was wanting to dissolve something, I would be using nitric or sulfuric. So hydrochloric acid, probably of those three, is probably the least likely to, um, you know, dissolve. I mean, it will, of course it will react. I mean, um, so it, it will dissolve things. I imagine things like cotton uh, left long enough, and, if, and particularly if the nitric acid was hot. I never thought, oh, sorry, the hydrochloric acid was hot. I never thought about that. Um, so hot hydrochloric acid, um, you know, would be even more potent. So, it de- I mean, there's no doubt hydrochloric acid is an acid, and it's quite a potent acid. I don't know what sort of concentration they use. In my own research, I've been able to ascertain that the hydrochloric acid vat, as it operates today, is an 18% solution running at a temperature of 80 degrees Celsius. It's 18%. HCl itself, so hydrochloric acid, HCl is actually a gas, and you dissolve the HCl gas in water to make the hydrochloric acid, and you can only dissolve so much of that gas. So I think maximum typically is about 38%. You might be able to get it up slightly more. So 18%, you know, is relatively, you know, that's relatively concentrated. Yeah, and it's running at 80 degrees Celsius. Right. Okay. So the the more the, the higher the temperature, the more vicious, in a sense, you know, that will uh, the the acid will be. I guess. I explained to Lyle my reason for the question is that I'm trying to ascertain whether a jacket could dissolve in hydrochloric acid with these properties. Confirmed. Yeah. No. I I think that's I think that's quite reasonable. I mean, you know, acid will weaken. So synthetic might be a bit uh, bit trickier, but yeah. So I would have thought that cotton. Uh, subjected to 18% hydrochloric acid at 80 degrees centigrade would slowly dissolve. It won't happen quickly, but it will. It would dissolve over time. So, what, what sort of time frame are we talking? We're talking five think? five days. Oh, then yeah, I would say that's quite possible. Yes, that that would. Uh, you would certainly not have much of the jacket left after five days in in acid like that. Yep. Mm. Well, yeah, they actually yep. the, the guy he said he said they pulled out remains of the jacket and. Yep, that, what, that would what, make yeah. sense. And what made him, un- he knew it was the jacket because he just said he could tell the stitching. It must have been synthetic stitching. Right, um, right, yep. yeah. Yeah, so, no, I think that, that makes that makes perfect sense. I would think that, you know, I, with, without conducting any tests or anything, I would think that was quite possible that it would, that that, that uh, acid, uh, at that concentration at that temperature would be able to dissolve over time a cotton jacket. Yep. Yeah. Um, uh, so tell me about, so it, it has an ele- the things that it won't dissolve, sort of, um, you know, obviously 
uh, like organic tissue and and those kind of things. Yeah, I don't. So you know, you wouldn't. I certainly wouldn't dissolve a body. That's that's true. I mean, yeah. there's that many acids that would be able to do that. I mean, not concentrated nitric maybe hydrofluoric, which is really really dangerous. Um, I might be able to, but then hydrofluoric dissolves glass as well. So yeah, so it, I, it won't be able to dissolve synthetics like plastics, uh, glass, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, but you know, material like cotton, which is you know. Um, uh, like I said, it doesn't have the the thing about hydrochloric acid as opposed to the other ones. It doesn't because it's just a hydrogen atom and a chlorine atom combined. Uh, you're floating around. It doesn't have any oxidizing properties, so I can't kind of rip the blazes out of stuff in the way that, say, sulfuric or nitric acid might. Yeah. Um, but it's still, you know, it's still a potent acid, and uh, the acid will just slowly, you know, react with the the material that makes up the. Uh, it'll weaken it, and that that heat. The heat's the important thing as well. It'll slowly just it would slowly disint I would imagine it would slowly disintegrate cotton quite easily, I'd have thought. Yeah. But things like plastics and synthetics probably less so. Uh, they were, they were, most acids would struggle to, 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 to get rid of them, to be honest. Well eighteen percent is quite is quite um, is quite I mean as I said, thirty eight percent is what I would consider concentrated hydrochloric acid take the top off that and it'll fume so it's half that concentration so yeah so it's you know it's it's half concentrated if you like so it, it is quite concentrated mm. and um at uh, and also the, the other thing is that temperature you know the fact you've got temperature that'll speed up any reaction mm. Yeah. Um, so that's a factor. That's a factor as well. So eighty degrees. You know, I've, I've never actually, to be honest, I've never heated. Oh, I suppose I have. Um, but yeah, um, you know, I, I, it would be quite. It would be quite an effective acid at that. Certainly, it's an acid, and it would be effective at that temperature. Yeah, even more acidic at that temperature. Yeah. Yeah, and I think because the steel actually runs through at quite mm. a high speed, it's it's really agitating that water. So whatever whatever's in yes. there is going to be floating around quite. Which yep. One? Yeah, that's right. So yeah, and and so you know, slowly being ripped to pieces as it because it'll weaken the it'll weaken the cloth, and you know, you can you can imagine how it will just slowly disintegrate. Mm. I, I wouldn't be at all surprised. I mean, cotton's you know, relative, you know, I imagine cotton it's pretty easy to destroy. I would think cellulose. So yeah. I may have gone overboard on the clarification of the acid, but I think we can now definitively say that the hot hydrochloric acid in the vat was not only acidic, but very acidic. Not quite on the level of sulfuric or nitric, but very potent nonetheless. But I want to reiterate what Lyle said, that hydrochloric acid will not quickly break down organics like flesh or synthetics like plastic. To be clear, so there's no confusion, there is A, no possible way Jim's body could have been put in the vat, and B, even if it was it would not have dissolved. But there is no doubt that other materials like clothing can and would dissolve. Let's quickly go over the items listed as being found in the acid vat and filter in the police report. In the vat, a red padlock with the name Jim Donnelly. This was a work-related lock used for a safety procedure. His personal electronic pocket diary, Jim's glasses, three keys, a troubleshooting card, and a boot inner sole. In the filter, one $20 note and two $10 notes, a Visa card, an American Express card, Jim's library card, and a jacket labeled tag Dean. Dave Glossop also told me they located a number of small, perfectly squared denim pieces, which they couldn't explain. Despite what's always been thought, there's no great mystery here. All of these items 
bar the denim pieces and the boot in her sole, would have been found in Jim's work jacket, and possibly his wallet, which may have been in his jacket at the time it was thrown in the vat. The jacket's tag labelled Dean would have been made of a different synthetic material, as many labels are, and thus didn't dissolve with the rest of the jacket. And I believe the denim squares can be explained the same way. I can't confirm the exact material of the squares, whether they were actually denim or more just a denim colour. But I believe these pieces were simply square patches from either a jacket or some other larger item. These patches, or pockets, obviously consisted of a different, likely more synthetic material, and as such, didn't dissolve with the rest of the larger item, so found on their own, seemingly a bizarre item to be found in a vat of acid. The one item I can't explain is the boot inner sole. While this could point to an entire boot going in the vat, and while that's possible, it's unlikely due to the fact that the boots have a lot of rubber, and rubber will not dissolve. How often would you drain the tanks, you know, just, you know, for if you weren't looking for anything? Like, how often do they get sort of drained and refreshed? Oh, shutdowns, mate. Major shutdowns. Um, geez, I couldn't even that maybe one to six months or even a year. You know, because what they, they just, we're just replenish the acid in there. To keep keep the shrink up, just add more, yeah. more concentrate acid to keep it up. You know. Yeah. So I mean, if that helmet hadn't been sitting there, these things would have probably never been found because by the time it would have been drained, they probably would have dissolved, right? Um, I think the money. No, I don't think the money would have been safe, and the plastic cars would have been safe. Oh, yeah, so it could have been. Yeah, I mean, even if it was a year later, you know, and um, and it was only because we checked the filters because the first time I I didn't even know there was a filter before that. Well. Not that I was all that, all that um, familiar with it, but I don't think the filters are hardly ever checked, you know. This point is, I think, key to the thinking behind putting the items in the acid vat. Had the helmet not been found, resulting in the staff checking the vat, the remaining smaller items would likely not have been found for many months, possibly even years. Had the helmet fit through the access port, it would have left absolutely no trace of Jim at all until the vat was eventually completely drained. In reality, it was the perfect place to dispose of the items. But of course, the helmet wouldn't fit through the access hole and thus led to the items being found. And let's consider for a moment the location of the acid vat and its accessibility. It wasn't just on the way somewhere where you would just casually throw the jacket in. It was down a corridor not often used and up a flight of stairs. Whoever put the jacket in the tank knew exactly where they were going and why. As such, I believe we can significantly narrow who this person could have been. It had to have been a current or former staff member of the Rolling Mills plant and someone with sound knowledge of the pickle line. Or, of course, it could have been Jim who as a production engineer was very familiar with the pickle line and its operation. I'd like to focus on one aspect of the items found in the vat, and that's the things that weren't found. Jim's ATM card and his driver's license. Both of which Tracy has told me would normally be found in his wallet. And on the topic of Jim's wallet, 
I asked Tracy what it was made of. Was it a cloth-style Velcro wallet, or was it a leather style? And she said it was a leather one. Brand new. In fact, a recent birthday present he'd received only a couple weeks earlier on June 7th. This was important, because hydrochloric acid wouldn't completely dissolve a leather wallet in this period of time. And as far as I'm aware, no traces of a leather wallet were found. Well, so it seemed. Until, as I was literally writing this episode, I finally spoke to former NZ Steel employee and chemist, Jeremy Batchelor. Mineral acid will not dissolve protein. Jeremy has a neurological condition which affects his speech, so I haven't included his interview on the podcast. However, he has a clear memory of that time and described in detail his involvement with the technical aspects of draining the tanks and the protein tests he performed at the time for the police to prove categorically that there were no human remains in the tank. As a chemist, he has an in-depth understanding of hydrochloric acid, and without prompting, he recalled the items pulled from the tank. When he said one was a wallet, surprised, I asked him what type of wallet. He said leather. A male in his 40s having a leather wallet is extremely common, so there are no surprises there. But if true, it would fit the theory that Jim's wallet was also in his jacket at the time. After my interview with Jeremy, I spoke to Mark Olson again, who confirmed he recalled the remains of a wallet. And it would certainly make sense, given two credit cards, cash, a library card were found in the filter. Things that would not normally be carried loosely in a steel mill jacket. But it would also mean that Jim's driver's license and his ATM card were not in the wallet at the time. So where were they? Also consider that Jim's car keys and house keys were never found. These four items appear to have been separated and taken for some reason. Is it possible that they were simply in Jim's pant pockets? We've covered a huge amount of technical detail in this episode, relating to acids and their strength, and I understand that may have been a lot to digest, but I'm sure you can appreciate its importance. Mark and I speak at length about details during this time. As we're about to wrap up the interview, he briefly covers the subject of cameras, before he finally mentions something that I haven't stopped thinking about since. There was nothing odd about the helmet or anything, it was just a helmet. Yeah, yeah, like I say, uh, sometimes they are less discarded around the place, you know, the the old helmets and that, you know. Yeah. You know, nothing unusual. Yeah. Um, and it was up to, I think if I'm, it was upside down. Which if I'm, yeah, it was, yeah. And it, was, you know, it wasn't all that easy. We're not turning the other way. They're easy to see, you know, but easier to see. But they're upside down, not so easy to see. Even though, like, you think it probably wasn't planted, that area of the of the mill um, at night, you know, how, especially at that time too, I mean, how many people are walking around, you know, could someone, if they knew what they were doing, get down there and put the helmet without being seen if they wanted to during the night? Uh, yep. Yep. No, it's not a, it wasn't an area that was um, accessed frequently. You know, that you'd only go up there for a reason, you know. Um, and, um, 
yeah, most of the time there's there's no one up there, you know. And the only reason we go up there for maintenance or changing ringer rolls or things like that, um, you know. Um, yeah, so you could get – and there's one pole at one end and another pole at the other end at ground level, and it's, you know, in between there's no – I don't think there's any, I don't think there was any cameras up there showing. I can't can't recall actually. It's interesting that one with, I mean, obviously they'll have cameras everywhere nowadays, but the fact that there doesn't seem to be any, any camera footage or anything. No, I don't think there was because, like they have, they have camera footage of the uh, the loops and that the entry loops and delivery loops, which because you can see strip moving. But up there, there's nothing to see, you know. Mm. You see a bit of um, steam coming out of the tanks, you know, because of the heat and that, but you can't see moving strip or anything. Where the strip's running, you know, they've got cameras on with entry loops, you know, the rolls, you know, the, the, the uh, loops going in and out, you know, so they have to watch out whether or not they don't crash or, you know, the strip doesn't come off or rip or something like that. My my theory as well is that um, we had trains going twice a day down to Tauranga, you know, jump on a coil train and get down there without even no one even know you're on the train oh, and they yeah. go right and they go right to this Tarongan Wharf get unloaded you just, just step off there and step underneath like any boat you know oh that's interesting so so what time of day do you remember that they used to go I'm pretty yeah I, I couldn't be I couldn't actually tell you it was two a day I'm pretty sure at that time we were doing two a day and I mean once you hopped on a tra- under those wagons no one can see you anyway because they're all covered Oh, so you could, you just, could jump just jump right in there. Yeah, yeah. Just pull pull back the pull back the my um covers and jump in and shut it. So no one would ever check it. The biggest question in Jim's case has always been if Jim has died or been killed, then where's his body? There have always been three main theories. One that Jim somehow died in the mill and his body has never been located. Two, that Jim sailed away on some mystery yacht to start a new life. And three, that Jim ran away into the bush somewhere and possibly ended his own life. These theories present possibilities, however implausible, that Jim could have disappeared without being seen. But what if there was another possibility? What if there was a much simpler way that Jim could leave the mill and be far away, easily, within hours, and leave no trace. What if that possibility was a train? A train that leaves the Glenbrook steel mill every day. A train that is unguarded and largely unchecked. That train is the Mission Bush Line. Guilt is written, produced, and edited by me, Ryan Wolf. The title track is Nuclear Conception by Alison Winter. You'll find further photos and videos related to this podcast on my Instagram, RyanWolfNZ, or our Facebook page, Brevity Studios NZ. For ad-free listening and bonus content, you can subscribe for the price of a coffee on Apple Plus under our Brevity Studios channel. You can also find further information on our website, theguiltpodcast.com. If you have any information related to the disappearance of Jim Donnelly or the subsequent search at the mill, you can contact us anonymously at brevitystudiosnz 
at gmail.com. On the next episode of Guilt. Yeah, well, what happens is that the wagons are usually shunted around the back to where they are actually manufacturing the, uh, the coils and where they're loaded out. And so the wagons are all loaded out there. Uh, the Mission Bush uh, shunting system is, is their own people. They've got uh, their own staff, uh, the mill staff, and it's a, a driver and uh, a, a sort of a one and two. But that is, that is highly possible. The, the crew that come down on the shunt, the guy on the ground will probably should, but probably sometimes doesn't, uh, would do a quick walk around the train just to see that everything is, there's nothing sort of untoward. 